President Biden will address the U.N. today, where he's expected to call on global leaders to help protect democracies. It's Tuesday, September 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, House GOP leaders are considering a stopgap spending bill to help avoid a government shutdown. Also this hour, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is blaming the Indian government for the assassination of a Sikh leader on Canadian soil. And a growing movement of student-led initiatives aims to end period poverty by pushing colleges to offer products for free. You're compensating in ways that like aren't healthy, like using the products that you do have for longer than you're supposed to because you don't have enough of them. In sports, Red Sox beat the Rangers, sunny in 70s today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden will address the United Nations this morning in New York. But as NPR's Tamara Keith reports, several other leaders are skipping the annual gathering. The leaders of China and Russia, as well as France and the UK, are not attending the UN General Assembly this year. But Biden administration officials insist the gathering still presents an opportunity for Biden to make his case for U.S. leadership in the world. A big part of the pitch is for continued support for Ukraine as it defends itself against Russia. But there are serious questions about how long U.S. support can continue. The White House has asked Congress for an additional $24 billion dollars to aid Ukraine. But some House Republicans, led by a hard-right faction, are balking at approving further assistance. Tamara Keith, NPR News, New York. Canada and India have each expelled a diplomat in an acrimonious dispute. Canada accuses India of involvement in the killing of a Canadian Sikh activist last June in Canada. India rejected the claim and says Canada is meddling in its internal affairs. The United Auto Workers Union says it will widen its selective strike against the big three U.S. automakers by Friday if there's no progress in contract talks. Currently, the UAW is on strike against three plants for GM and Stellantis. UAW President Sean Fain says union negotiators have been pressing the automakers for action. We've been available 24-7 to bargain a deal that recognizes our members' sacrifices and contributions to these record profits. Still, the big three failed to get down to business. Separately, Canadian auto workers have delayed a potential strike against Ford for a day. The Canadian union says it's reviewing a contract offer. Any potential Canadian auto strike could seriously affect Ford's U.S. automaking operations. Shares of Instacart are expected to start trading on the NASDAQ stock exchange today. As NPR's David Gura reports, the grocery delivery company postponed its IPO amid a slowdown last year. Instacart priced its initial public offering at $30 a share, which gives it a valuation of about $10 billion. That's about a quarter what it was in 2021, when Instacart was a lifeline to Americans who were in lockdown and interest rates were near zero. Investors were more willing to make riskier bets. This is the second major IPO in two weeks. The microchip designer Arm went public last Thursday, and Wall Street is optimistic more private companies will follow. Instacart works with more than 80,000 stores and calls itself a grocery technology company, one that's been expanding into advertising and health. David Gura, NPR News, New York. You're listening to NPR News 
from Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. There's a growing problem with the state public housing system in Massachusetts. A WBUR and ProPublica investigation finds units are sitting empty instead of housing low-income families, seniors, and those with disabilities. WBUR's Todd Wallach reports. More than 730 state-funded public apartments haven't been leased to anyone in at least a year. More than 1,000 others have been idle for months. That's according to public records. Doris Romero works at the Women's Lunch Place Day Shelter in Boston. She was outraged to hear the numbers. Honestly, that's a travesty. Like, the Commonwealth should be ashamed. There's no excuse for that. Like, there's no excuse for that. Honestly, speechless here. State housing officials say they're making changes to help fill vacancies faster. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. Boston firefighters are getting a 10.5% raise. That's part of their newest contract with the city. The Firefighters Union announced the group ratified the three-year agreement yesterday. The pay hike required a $27 million supplemental budget appropriation. The contract now heads to the city council for approval. UMass Memorial Health plans to move ahead with its closure of the Lemonster Birthing Center despite catastrophic flooding in the city there. Lemonster Mayor Dean Mazzarella asked the agency to push back its closure because of storm damage. He says there aren't enough ambulances to transport patients from Lemonster to other maternity wards in the area. UMass is closing the unit despite state officials labeling it an essential service last month. State education officials will publicly release the latest round of MCAS scores today. The 2023 MCAS were the first fully conducted after the pandemic. Last year, scores fell following the COVID-19 school shutdowns. The release of scores also comes as advocates renew efforts to end the MCAS graduation requirement. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. It was a win last night for the Red Sox. The team defeated the Texas Rangers on the road. Final score was 4-2. The teams play again tonight at 8. Mostly sunny and breezy today with high temperatures near 74 degrees. Tonight, skies stay clear and temperatures dip to around 57. Tomorrow, sunny again with a high near 74. Right now, it's 60 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBOR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. Five Americans that were held in Iran for years are en route to the U.S. following a prisoner exchange deal with Iran. For its part, Tehran gains access to billions in its own frozen oil revenues and the release of five Iranians imprisoned in the U.S. So where does this deal leave relations between the U.S. and Iran going forward? We've called on Barbara Slavin, Distinguished Fellow at the Stimson Center an international relations think tank here in Washington, and her focus is the Middle East and North Africa. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning, Leila. So does this prisoner exchange actually signal a thaw in U.S.-Iranian relations? I would call it a slight de-escalation, but I would not call it a thaw. You know, I sometimes feel like we're in a kind of infinite loop with Iran. Mm. We make some progress, and then we have setbacks, and we've had repeated hostage crises going back to 1979, 1981, when 52 Americans were held hostage, uh, 52 American diplomats. So it seems somehow we cannot get out of this this rut that we're in with Iran. Now, for the families of these Americans, this is something they've been begging their government to address, bring their loved ones home. It's happening. But critics of the deal say even if this money is supposed to be spent on humanitarian goods, the U.S. paid to get its citizens out, and this will embolden and other adversaries to capture or detain U.S. citizens and use them to get what they want from the U.S. What do you make of that argument? I don't think it holds water. You know, I think this was a really ingenious way of getting these five Americans home and welcome home to them, by the way. Uh, This was Iran's money. It was legally earned by Iran by exporting oil to South Korea. Uh, It was held in South Korean banks because the South Koreans couldn't figure out ways to transfer the funds. But it was technically legal to use that money for humanitarian purchases, which have never been sanctioned. So I don't think this argument is really valid. Uh, Of all the ways in which we freed hostages in Iran over the years, this is probably the most benign. What does it do for the Iranian government under President Ibrahim Raisi? I mean, it comes at a time that the government there continues to crush popular opposition. It also comes at a time where there's a lot of anger over the economic conditions in Iran with all of these sanctions. I don't think it does much for him. I mean, Mm. I, I think it's fair to say that he is perhaps among the most unpopular presidents that Iran has ever had. He was barely elected. Uh, Very few people turned out to vote in 2021. Uh, You pointed out Iran's economy has been in extremely poor shape. Now, that's partly because of U.S. sanctions, which Mm -hmm. were reimposed by the Trump administration when they quit the Iran nuclear deal in 2018. But a lot of it also has to do with mismanagement and corruption. Uh, and Iran's decision to double down on relationships with Russia and China uh, under U.S. sanctions. Now, these sanctions on the Iranian government, they are aimed at wearing down hardliners, depriving it of funds um, in order for it to come in line with some of what the world wants, including curbing its nuclear ambitions. Does that undermine that strategy, this deal? No, I don't think it does. And Mm -hmm. frankly, I have a lot of problems with the sanction strategy Mm -hmm. altogether. I think it tends to hurt ordinary people much more than it does people in the regime. 
and uh, it supports corruption, it supports smuggling, and it has pushed Iran, frankly, into this look east direction, doubling down on relationships with Russia and China. So I think we need a major rethink on broad economic sanctions, even as we uh, put individual sanctions on Iranians who are involved in uh, human rights abuses. And very quickly, when you say a rethink, is this deal possibly first step towards that rethink of that relationship with Iran in the U.S.? I would love to think so, but I, I have my doubts. Again, I think we have to figure out a different way of approaching Iran, and Iran has to figure out a different way of approaching the United States. Barbara Slavin, Distinguished Fellow at the Stimson Center. Barbara, thank you for your insights. Thank you. The Republican Party is getting a warning on how to talk about abortion from its own standard bearer, Donald Trump, though his position on the topic remains unclear. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben is here to explain. Danielle, so what's uh, Trump been saying about abortion? Well, there are really two parts to this. One is the warning to his party that you mentioned over the weekend. He issued two such warnings, both of them nearly identical. Uh, Here's one at the Concerned Women for America Summit, which was a meeting of conservative Christian women here in D.C. We do have to win, and we can win elections on this issue, but it's very delicate, and explaining it properly is an extremely important thing. You have to be able to speak and explain it properly. And a lot of politicians who are pro-life do not know how to discuss this topic, and they lose their election. Then the second part is what his position is, which is unclear. He's been noncommittal on a 15-week national abortion ban, which other candidates, like his former vice president, Mike Pence, like former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, they have said they would sign that. He also criticized Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who signed a ban on abortions after six weeks in his state, and that's among the strictest bans in the country. Trump doesn't like that either. The thing is, he's trying to walk a really particular line here. He's trying to take credit for the Roe overturn, but not for the aftermath. So what he does say is that the GOP needs to find a position that can win elections, but he won't say what it is. In an interview on NBC's Meet the Press, he said he wants to, quote, sit down with both sides and negotiate something. What he seems to mean is that he wants to negotiate and come to a number of weeks of pregnancy that's acceptable. But... That seems really, really difficult on an important topic that that both sides really care about a lot. Yeah, because haven't we seen from recent elections that attempts to restrict abortion are unpopular? Yes, very much so. We've seen voters, even in pretty red states, reject ballot measures that seek to restrict abortions. Plus, abortion is considered a reason why the GOP didn't do as well as it had hoped in last year's midterms, you might remember. And... Democrats are very aware of this. The Biden campaign, ahead of a couple of Trump visits to Iowa and South Dakota recently, ran ads in those two states highlighting Republican positions on abortion. But I really do want to stress here that this is about way more than politics and elections. There are lives at stake. Just last week, women and doctors in Tennessee, Idaho and Oklahoma filed a lawsuit saying that those bans in those states stopped patients from getting the health care they needed during dangerous pregnancies. And... Likewise, I should say, people who oppose abortion rights believe that, not because they want to win elections, but because they are concerned about the unborn. So should we expect this to become a major front in the GOP nomination? Maybe. I mean, you might expect Trump's opponents to to attack him, to try to pin his position down, given the fact that he's been so unclear as he was this last weekend. And maybe that'll happen. But 
The problem is, getting Trump in the same room with his opponents is really difficult. Most of the candidates appeared at a major gathering of Iowa evangelicals over the weekend, but Trump was not there. He did not show. And next week, there's the second candidate debate in Simi Valley, California. Trump has said he'll skip the debates, but his opponents will be there. So you are going to see this fought out at events, in the media, in speeches, at campaign stops. But Trump is also really far ahead, so he's beyond caring about the primary. He wants to look to the general where he can attack Democrats, attack Joe Biden, and of course, that is where he is much more comfortable. That's NPR's Daniel Kurtzleben. Daniel, thanks. Yes, thank you. The military says it has found the crash site of a cutting-edge stealth fighter jet that went missing over South Carolina Sunday. The pilot ejected from the Marine F-35B after it suffered an unnamed mishap, and the plane just kept going. Jay Price of member station WUNC has more on yesterday's discovery. The wreckage was found in a rural county about two hours northeast of Charleston. The Marine Corps hasn't revealed many details about the incident. Here's Corporal Christian Cortez, a spokesman for the unit the plane was attached to. We can confirm a mishap involving the F-35 Bravo Lightning II jet from Marine Fighter Attack Squadron, VMFAT-501, with 2nd Marine Aircraft Wing. Uh, the pilot safely ejected from the aircraft, and the mishap is still currently under investigation. The F-35 Lightning II costs about $80 million. It's the military's newest stealth fighter, and it is stealthy. In certain conditions, it apparently shows up on radar about as well as an object the size of a golf ball. It has the latest advanced systems for navigation, radar, radar jamming, targeting, and this one was a version built especially for the Marine Corps and could actually take off and land vertically. So far, it's unclear why the pilot ejected, how the crash site was finally found, or why it took so long to locate the wreckage. These little things can get extrapolated to big things. That's Ward Carroll. The retired Navy commander has a popular YouTube channel that focuses on military aviation, including dissections of complicated crashes. The amount of time the F-35 was missing and the fact that the military posted requests on social media for the public to call in tips prompted a flood of memes and online jokes. Carol is enjoying the jokes, but says the incident raises real questions. So what else have we lost? What else don't we know? We don't know where our own airplanes are. How do we know where the Chinese airplanes are or ships? He says he's as baffled as anyone else about how this plane, with all its cutting-edge systems, could have been so hard to find. Meanwhile, late Monday, the acting Marine Commandant, General Eric Smith, weighed in. There have been three major crashes of different kinds of Marine aircraft in the past six weeks. Citing those, he announced a two-day pause in operations for all Marine Corps aviation units to refocus on safety and proper practices. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price in Chapel Hill, North Carolina.
This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, for the first time, an American president today meets with the leaders of five Central Asian countries together. It's part of President Biden's attempt to counter Russia and China's influence. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events. Design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. Dr. Linda Vidone, Vice President of Clinical Management for Delta Dental of Massachusetts, a WBUR underwriter. We're pleased to underwrite WBUR as an effective way to increase awareness of the importance of oral health. Your oral health is a key predictor of overall health with direct links to diabetes, heart disease, mental health, and more. We believe that you can express your health through better oral health. For more information, visit expressyourhealthma.org. Mostly sunny today with a high near 75. Skies stay mostly clear tonight as it falls to a low around 57. Tomorrow, sunny and a high near 74. Right now, it's 60 degrees in Boston. WBUR's new field guide to Boston can help you discover and rediscover the place we call home. Learn about the city's neighborhoods, history, and urban legends. Dive in now at wbur.org slash fieldguide. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations, including social service organizations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at CySimsFoundation.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. The title of Mitski's new album started as a joke in her head during the pandemic. You know those state billboards where you enter the state and it's like, welcome to, let's say, I don't know, Minnesota, the land of however many lakes. (laughs) So I just thought it would be funny if it was like, the land is inhospitable and so are we. The Land is Inhospitable, and So Are We, is Mitski's seventh studio album. She says if the album were a person, it would be exhausted and having a midlife crisis. The opening song starts with an image. There's a bug like an angel stuck to the bottom of my glass with a The narrator of the song is an addict, and 
They drink the little last bit of their cup of whatever they're drinking, but because the narrator is raising the glass, it looks like there's an angel in the sky in the form of a bug. Sometimes a drink feels like family. One of the things about your album, it's like a collection of short stories. What makes you want to inhabit all these different characters like that in each of the songs that you sing? Well, that's interesting because most of the narratives in the songs I write are narratives that didn't happen in my real life. Really? But sometimes fiction or made-up stories is actually the best path towards speaking some sort of personal truth. Mm-hmm. So I am all of these characters. All of these songs are true in essence, Hmm. but I'm just putting it through a character that doesn't exist or a narrative that didn't happen because that happens to be the best way to express how I really feel. Let's talk about heaven. One moment we're hearing from someone in the throes of addiction, and then a couple of songs later, it's bliss and love. How do you think about the world of the album, where these points of view coexist? I think the world of the album is united by love. Mm. Sometimes the love is not good for you, and sometimes it's a respite from a dark situation. Sometimes it's just this pure, wonderful light. You've called it your most American album. What do you mean by that? I'm always trying to figure out what it means to be American. Me too. But especially with this album, I think I'm trying to reconcile all my various identities with being American today. Hmm. I feel like I've always been seeing my own identities through the eyes of other people who haven't lived my identities. And I kind of think maybe that's also very uniquely American. Yeah. (laughs) I'm Asian-American. I'm half white, half Asian, and so I don't really fit into either community very well. I am an other in America, even though I am American, and I almost feel like a majority of Americans are actually other, and that's kind of what (laughs) makes America what it is. There was a moment in 2019 where you intended to leave music, like you were done with the industry, but you came back. What brought you back? Well, to clarify, I never intended to leave music, but I think it was about whether I should do this as a job. Mostly I was uncomfortable with being in the public eye, so I decided to leave the industry for however long it would take for me to get my heart and soul back. But eventually, I kind of looked around and realized just how lucky I was Mm. to get to create the music I want to make 
and have my music reach other people. And I just realized, you know what, I need to buck up in a sense and just <laughs> take all the good that comes with the bad. I mean, was there something empowering about walking away for a moment, thinking about yourself and coming back and realize people still wanted to hear the music you were going to make, even if you took a moment for yourself? Well, nothing was consciously empowering in the moment. <laughs> I really made that decision out of desperation because yeah. I felt like I was just at my limit. I couldn't see a way out of my situation, so I just left it all. But walking away and sort of sitting with myself helped me realize what I could control. And that in and of itself, I think, in retrospect, was very empowering. Yeah. It doesn't feel like the world has defeated you, you know, even if things have been hard sometimes. Yeah. I mean, granted, I have had one of the more luckier lives. Mm. So <laughs> maybe if I were pushed a little harder, I would be down. <laughs> but I did go quite down, mostly of my own doing. I was at a point where everything around me felt completely dark. And I realized if there's no light around me, it's kind of up to me to be the light for myself. And I think that light is love for me. Mm -hmm. As long as I just hold on to my love for people, for the world, for getting to live, then my world will have love in it. Mitski, her new album is The Land is Inhospitable, and so are we. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.40 on Morning Edition, how the University of Colorado's new football coach is turning the program from an underdog into the hottest ticket in the NCAA. It's 7.29. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Explore Babson College graduate programs at their virtual open house on October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu slash gradopenhouse. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Five Americans released by Iran as part of a prisoner exchange between the Biden administration and Tehran arrived at Fort Belvoir in Virginia this morning. Five Iranians facing charges in the U.S. were also freed as part of the deal. In addition, the U.S. released $6 billion in frozen Iranian oil assets. Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine will be a main focus today at the U.N. General Assembly. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is expected to press world leaders for broader support of Kyiv when he addresses the annual gathering in person. As Linda Fasulo reports, ahead of Zelensky's speech will be remarks from President Biden. 
In his speech, President Biden is expected to call for increased international support for Ukraine, advancing global democracy, and working more closely with developing countries. Zelensky spent part of yesterday in New York visiting wounded Ukrainian soldiers at a hospital on Staten Island. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says Ukraine's counteroffensive against Russian forces is working. Ukraine's counteroffensive continues to make steady forward progress. And brave Ukrainian troops are breaking through the heavily fortified lines of Russia's army of aggression. Austin was speaking earlier today in Germany. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A man arrested in Watertown in 2021 is among the five Iranian nationals released from U.S. custody as part of a prisoner exchange. Kaveh Afrasiabi was a political scientist and author living here. The Justice Department says he was arrested on charges that he acted as an unregistered foreign agent. They say he was exposed as a secret employee of the Iranian government. A Boston city councilor is calling on his colleagues to approve more police funding after a shooting in Dorchester over the weekend. Michael Flaherty is asking councilors to approve nearly $2.5 million in state grants. The money would go to the Boston Regional Intelligence Center. Last week, councilors told the Boston Herald they wanted to learn more before approving the funding. Civil rights organizations in Rhode Island say the government is discriminating against minority-owned businesses. The Rhode Island Black Business Association and Lawyers for Civil Rights sent a letter to the governor's office outlining concerns this week. The group say the state is not regularly meeting its requirement to award at least 10 percent of contracts to women and minority-owned businesses. Football players and coaches at King Philip Regional High School will be required to attend hazing and bystander training. That's after an internal investigation found the Rentham School's football program engaged in hazing while at a summer training camp. The Boston Globe reports players encouraged their fellow students to hit one another when the coaches weren't present. No injuries were reported as a result. It's 7.33. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 100 years of experience providing trustee services for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. The Red Sox are celebrating a come-from-behind win in Texas. The Sox outscored the Rangers last night by two runs. Final score was 4-2. That snaps a four-game losing streak for the team. They play in Arlington again tonight. Mostly clear skies today and highs in the mid-70s. Tonight it stays mostly clear as it falls to lows in the upper 50s. Sunny tomorrow with a high back in the mid-70s. Right now it's 61 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. President Biden will address the U.N. General Assembly in New York today. On the sidelines, he'll also host a summit with five Central Asian countries. Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. These former Soviet states share close economic and cultural ties to both Russia and China. So what can the U.S. offer to increase its influence in the strategically important region? We called up Raffaello Pantucci. He's a senior fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies in Singapore. So why has the Biden administration determined that now is the time for the U.S. to, to seek deeper engagement with these Central Asian countries? Well, I mean, I think that this is uh, not an entirely new policy uh, by the United States. We've seen the U.S. going back a few administrations now has been trying to engage with the Central Asian countries. Um, And you've had the creation of this kind of format, which they call a C5 plus one, which is the five Central Asian countries, which you named, plus uh, the United States in this case. And the Central Asians have a number of formats like this. But I think the U.S. has been very specific about trying to foster this engagement. And I think the president's uh, specific uh, uh, engagement into this format, which follows Secretary Blinken's engagement with this format earlier this year, uh, reflects a kind of interest and desire by the U.S. to try to engage with this group of countries um, to help give them options in a way. Because while these are countries that are kind of entirely surrounded by China and Russia and due to, you know, obvious geographical yeah. uh, reasons have very strong economic and historical links with these two neighbors, they would like to have other options. And the United States is trying to help them develop some of those. So the focus then will be on Russia and China. There's no two ways about that. I think it's inevitable that that part of the conversation will come up a lot. But I think what the U.S. is tries to be careful about is trying not to frame the conversation about being too much only about these other countries and trying to focus on the five Central Asians for themselves. I mean, no country likes to be essentially seen through the lens of someone else. They want to be seen, you know, in their own standing. Um, And so for the Central Asian countries, they want to be acknowledged and recognized as powers in their own right, and they want the United States to want to engage with them because the U.S. wants to engage with them, rather than than being merely seen as sort of pawns in some sort of wider geopolitical struggle against China and Russia. So considering the geographic proximity, um, what can the U.S. offer that Russia and China maybe cannot or is not willing to offer? I think in a way it's it's the it's the ability for the region to have more economic partners and economic relationships. Um, you know, the region at the moment, their economic spheres are very heavily obviously dominated by their economic relationships with Russia and with China. And China is the one that's really been the most ascendant over the past you know, decade or two, really. Um, And it's become the largest trading partner, I think, of all the countries. Um, It's also a very heavy investor into the region. So it's on that investment side in particular uh, that I think the region would like to see more Western companies and American companies in particular uh, trying to come in and offer uh, an alternative option uh, for them. So it's really about the U.S. offering uh, the region options. This is a region that feels very bound by its geography, but would like to have options uh, out there. And the U.S. offering it is uh, is something that they very much encourage. There is another side to this, of course, which is very much focused on the conflict in Ukraine, because unfortunately, these countries have also uh, become, in some cases, conduits for sanctions evasion. Um, and so there's a desire by the U.S. to try to get these countries to clamp down on that um, sanctions evasion specifically to try to bypass some of the restrictions towards Russia. That's Raffaello Pantucci. He's senior fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies in Singapore. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Have a good day.
College students pay for many essentials beyond tuition and books, and for some, a very personal health essential can often be unaffordable. It's why there's a growing movement at some campuses to end what's called period poverty, a lack of access to menstrual products by providing them for free. Some students are working to make the effort even more widespread. Michelle Jokish-Polo from member station WKAR reports. If you walk into a public bathroom, you can usually find a vending machine with period products. Plunk in some coins, and the emergency tampon or pad is available. Michigan State University now offers period products for free on shelves in many women's and gender-neutral bathrooms. The push for change began five years ago when Emily Estrada was a resident assistant on campus and noticed a problem. Condoms were widely available for free on campus, but when it came to an essential health product, that wasn't the case. Our Olin Health Center didn't have pads and tampons for free or like anywhere that you would go. So Estrada formed a student group called Mission Menstruation, and the students began offering free period products in busy areas of campus. According to a 2021 study from the medical journal BMC Women's Health, 14% of college students struggled to access period products on a regular basis. Estrada says for those students, that can often lead to health issues. Because you're compensating for having your period in ways that, like, aren't healthy, like using toilet paper or rags or, like, using the products that you do have for longer than you're supposed to because you don't have enough of them. Estrada and another student, Nupur Huria, started to push the administration at MSU asking for it to provide tampons and pads for free in bathrooms. Horia says they surveyed hundreds of students to show there was a problem. We found that 94% of the surveyed menstruators have found themselves in a situation where they needed a period product, but there weren't any available. After nearly four years of advocacy, Michigan State did make a change. And in January of this year, it finished installing free dispensers in all first-floor women's and gender-neutral bathrooms in campus buildings. There are nearly 6,000 universities and colleges in the country, and there's no list of how many provide menstrual products for free. But there is a growing movement of student-led initiatives. Earlier this year, the University of Mississippi began offering free tampons and pads in many bathrooms on campus, following in the footsteps of the University of Michigan. And in California, the Menstrual Equity Act requires public schools grades 6 through 12 and state universities to provide free period products in bathrooms. Estrada is no longer a student at Michigan State University, but she says the success she's witnessed there and at other places show that schools can offer menstrual products for free just like they do toilet paper. And they're just not doing it because the students aren't asking for it loudly enough. Today, she's helping them speak up. Mission Menstruation has a network of students growing their own chapters and advocating for free menstrual products at their universities. It's also working to establish a system where students can assess which colleges are doing so on their campuses. For NPR News, I'm Michelle Jokishbolo in East Lansing, Michigan. This is NPR News. 
Thanks for listening to WBUR on this Tuesday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour, amid widening international disagreements and an increasingly polarized world, President Biden is expected to make a call for unity today when he addresses the United Nations General Assembly. It's 742. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, advancing together by using collaboration to drive new discoveries. More at umassmed.edu together. And the International Institute of New England, helping respond to the state of emergency in Massachusetts by supporting refugees and immigrants. IINE.org. Mid-70s and sunny today, upper 50s and mostly clear tonight, tomorrow sunny and back in the mid-70s. Right now it's 61 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, Watertown-based Lindra Therapeutics is the latest biotech company to announce layoffs. A company source tells the Boston Business Journal it's slashing 23 percent of its workforce. It's unclear how many employees that is. Lindra also plans to consolidate its headquarters into a facility in Lexington. Top Massachusetts business officials are calling on the Biden administration to expedite work authorizations for migrants. In a letter, they say it's important to allow migrants to work to reduce strain on the state shelter system. Members, including the Massachusetts Business Roundtable and Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce, signed on to the letter. Some of the best corn mazes in America are in New England. That's according to a new ranking from USA Today. True G Family Orchards in Levant, Maine is ranked number one. Davis Mega Maze in Sterling, Massachusetts also made the list at number five. It's 744. Married couple Terry and Al Vester are in their 60s, ready to retire, but they're the only two primary care doctors in their small Alabama town. There are people here that still need doctors, so we want us to take care of them until someone else is here to take care of them. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. How rural areas struggle to attract and keep medical talent. On All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Layla Faldin. The most electrifying team in college football this season is the University of Colorado. The Buffaloes won just a single game last year. This year, they're already 3-0 and and are the talk of the sporting world thanks to their flashy new coach, Deion Sanders, and a whole new roster of players. The team's success has also been a huge boost to local businesses, as Colorado Public Radio's Tony Gorman reports from Boulder. Colorado coach Deion Sanders is making a believer out of everyone in the college football universe this season. What's up, boss? You believe now? You, you, hold on, hold on, hold on, oh no. Do you believe that? So much so, the CU home games are some of the hottest tickets around. 
For the first time in 27 years, season tickets are sold out, and that means the resale market is soaring. The nosebleed sections are going for hundreds of dollars, and front row seats more than 15,000. Even students are having a hard time. CU freshman Eli Jason was one of the lucky ones. He won a student sports pass through a lottery. The best place in the country right now, most hype in the world. No one knows what's happening right here besides what's happening in Boulder. The Buffaloes game Saturday against in-state rival Colorado State, a thriller won by Colorado in double overtime, was more like a Hollywood affair. The nation's top recruits, former NFL players, and celebrities all showed up. It's part of the prime effect. Sanders, known as Coach Prime, continues to garner national media exposure every week. The excitement and economic boom have always followed Sanders. When he coached Jackson State in Mississippi, the region saw a huge boost. The Tigers football team brought in $30 million to the city in 2021, almost double the season before the pandemic. Are you finding everything all right, ma'am? Yes. Okay, perfect. Boulder is already seeing it too, where the Buffalo Rome, a souvenir shop, saw a huge spike in sales when Sanders was hired. Store manager Chandler Parker says they're constantly restocking CU merchandise. Essentially, since the first win of the season, our business has gone up at least, I would say, 50 to 60 percent on, especially like on game days. This was featured on ESPN this morning. Over on University Hill, a line pours out the door of the sink. The restaurant has been around for a century. Co-owner Chris Heinrich says he hasn't been this busy since he purchased the sink in 1992. And we started seeing people come in on Thursday night this week, even though it's a kind of a local game playing CSU. And, you know, we expect people to be around uh, all the way into Monday. Even Coach Prime is getting in on the action. He launched a line of custom-made sunglasses by Blenders last week that got a boost when Colorado State's coach criticized him. Sanders, who is known for wearing hats, hoodies, and sunglasses to his press conferences, responded by giving his players their own sunglasses. These are the shades. I'm gonna give you these. <laughs> Sanders said Blenders made $1.2 million in sales in one day. Those shades came out just in time because Sanders wants his team to enjoy the spotlight. And as long as Coach Prime is at CU, Boulder will too. For NPR News, I'm Tony Gorman in Boulder. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, a WBUR ProPublica investigation finds many state-subsidized apartments in Massachusetts are sitting empty for months or even years. It's 7.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC and Bridgewater State University, hosting Nobel Peace Prize laureate Lech Walesa on campus October 3rd, bridgew.edu events. 
I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like Six, out of this world. Five, and liftoff of Artemis One. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Americans detained for years in Iran are back in the U.S. as part of a prisoner swap. President Biden today gives his annual address to world leaders at the United Nations General Assembly in New York. And India's government has expelled a top Canadian diplomat after Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau accused the country of being involved in the killing of a sick activist on Canadian soil. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Bass Berry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Just a few clouds today, otherwise sunny and in the mid 70s. Temperatures fall to the upper 50s tonight. Tomorrow, sunny and mid 70s again. Thursday will be sunny too and in the low 70s. Right now, it's 62 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. If you're stuck in traffic now, spare a thought for the capital of Colombia. Bogotá is home to 11 million people and to a lot of traffic. One study claims it has the worst rush hour traffic in the world. Now, better public transportation could help. So now, after more than 80 years of dithering, Bogotá officials are finally building a metro. Here's reporter John Otis. It's rush hour in Bogota, and as usual, cars and trucks are just inching along. Last year, the TomTom Traffic Index ranked the Bogota metro area as having the world's worst rush hour gridlock, beating out megacities like Manila, Mumbai, and Tokyo. The survey said Bogota drivers spend 10 days per year stuck in congestion. There are many reasons for the log jams, including too few traffic lights, too many potholes, and aging vehicles that break down on the streets. Another problem is that millions of Bogotanos are crowded into poor and working class neighborhoods on the outskirts of the city. That means long commutes, all at the same time, over the same roads, to get to jobs in the city center and in the northern business district. No es bueno. Isabel Acero has to take three buses to get from her home in South Bogota to her job at a downtown call center. De aquí son dos horas. She says it takes her two hours to get to work and another two to get home. Bogota has managed to get by all these years without a metro because it built a state-of-the-art BRT, or Bus Rapid Transit Network, that uses dedicated bus lanes rather than city streets. Built 25 years ago, Bogota's BRT has been copied all over Latin America. But it failed to expand along with the city's population and is now badly overcrowded. Efforts to build a metro date back to 1942, but politics kept getting in the way. Bogota mayors often go on to run for president. And to win votes, they want to take credit for building the metro. Thus, a succession of mayors kept redesigning the project to put their own personal stamp on it. Every mayor, 
every four years change totally the plans. The result is that we have nothing. That's Luis Angel Guzman, an urban planner at Los Andes University in Bogota. All these delays, Guzman says, have left Bogota as the world's third largest city without a metro. But that's finally starting to change. Two years ago, workers broke ground on the first 14 miles of the new Bogota Metro. It will start out as an elevated train, although additional lines will likely run underground. This is one of the main construction sites for the new Metro. There's about a dozen workers right behind me, and they're working on a bridge that's going to hold up part of the Metro. Line one of the Metro is scheduled to open in 2028. Meanwhile, city officials are restricting the use of cars based on license plate numbers and may start charging fees for driving in congested areas. We can't go on thinking that cars are the best way to get around, Deanita Avila, Bogota's mobility secretary, tells NPR. Besides promoting the metro, her team is building more bus lanes and sidewalks and adding to Bogota's network of bike paths, which is Latin America's largest. However, in the short term, all of these projects are causing more traffic snarls. Motorists must now detour around hundreds of construction sites, as I found out after jumping into a taxi. Now I'm on my way home from reporting this story, and we are stuck in a bumper-to-bumper traffic jam. We're not moving at all. For NPR News, I'm John Otis in Bogota. Working from home is so 2020. So what's the next trend in remote work? Yeah, forget coffee shops. Some people now want work to come with a workout. I feel like I can put in a day that's 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. and I can get a lot of work done and also stay active and stay physically fit. That's Mike Bliley, an attorney from Fairfax, Virginia, who works two days a week at a co-working space in a rock climbing gym. It makes the workday more enjoyable. It takes the edge off a little bit. So I find that when I finish up a climbing session and start work, I feel like my brain is already mentally primed with that creative energy. So I'll notice that I'm more productive in that session immediately afterwards. Jeff Shore is the marketing director of Sport Rock Climbing Centers in Alexandria, Virginia. He insists working out of a gym promotes employee productivity. Getting your blood pumping, reconnecting with your body, feeling physical sensation is a great way to pull you out of this really intense cerebral workflow and allow you to come back in recharged and to be able to work productively. For Bliley, working at the gym is self-care. The biggest stressor that I've been dealing with over the last few years is just trying to find that semblance of work-life balance, which is famously not great for attorneys. And it's a lot easier to get a workout done when you're already at the gym. Being able to get all of these leisure activity in in a day where I wouldn't be able to do so, it really just helps with that balance. Jeff Shore hopes more people give working at the gym a try. We should all think about how much of our lives are spent sitting in a kind of stagnating way and how 
the integration of movement into our lives can be really impactful and beneficial. And I find great value in it. I wonder if NPR would let us do our jobs from the gym, although I prefer a bakery, but whatever. What do you think, eh? Well, see, I, I consider the world to be my gym, Layla. Mm. I mean, the ground is right there. Do some push-ups. I mean, why not? It's right there. Mm -hmm, What's the mm -hmm. problem? I guess the world is my gym, too, but I usually <laughs> run to the bakery, get cake, and then walk home. See, at least you're doing some exercise. You're running to the bakery. True. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadlin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vermont Tourism. Trip ideas and planning tools available at vermontvacation.com. Vermont, a little bit like a dream, very much open. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. India and Canada expel each other's diplomats in an escalating conflict over India's alleged involvement in the assassination of a Canadian Sikh activist. It's Tuesday, September 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a WBUR ProPublica investigation finds many state-subsidized apartments in Massachusetts are sitting empty for months or even years. This one has been vacant for the longest time. So this has been vacant for 917 days. Also this hour, a close look at how women are faring in Libya after the devastating flooding there. And never mind the neighbor's wandering cat, Massachusetts residents seem to be having more close encounters with bears and coyotes. Coyotes and bears are very smart animals, uh, and they've learned that the best place to find food is in our backyards and close to our homes. Red Sox beat the Rangers, sunny in 70s today. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. President Biden and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will address the U.N. General Assembly today. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports Russia's war in Ukraine will be high on the agenda. Biden administration officials say Russia's war strikes at the heart of the U.N. charter, and President Biden will reinforce that in his speech to the General Assembly. For his part, President Zelensky is trying to convince countries that have been on the fence to back his ideas on how the war should end, that is, with Ukraine's sovereignty intact. The conflict has affected countries around the world, especially those that rely on Ukrainian grain exports. Russia recently pulled out of a deal that allowed Ukraine to ship food via the Black Sea. The UN Secretary General is still trying to revive that. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, New York. The Indian government has rejected allegations it was involved in the killing of a Sikh separatist leader in Canada. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made the claim in Parliament yesterday. Sushmita Patak reports ties between both countries are at a historic low. 
The two countries are sparring over the Khalistan movement, which seeks to establish a Sikh homeland separate from India. India considers Khalistan supporters terrorists and accuses Canada of sheltering them. In June, a Sikh separatist leader was shot dead in Canada, and Trudeau accuses India's government of being involved in it. India's Ministry of External Affairs called the allegations absurd and motivated. India has expelled a senior Canadian diplomat after Canada removed a top Indian diplomat. New Delhi has also expressed concerns about what it calls growing interference by Canada in India's internal affairs. For NPR News, I'm Sushmita Pathak in Delhi. Congress is working toward a critical deadline to pass a bill that would keep the federal government open past September 30th. NPR's Windsor Johnston tells us House Republicans have unveiled a stopgap funding measure, but Democrats in both chambers are blasting it. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is describing the House proposal as a hard right screed, accusing Republicans of refusing to work across the aisle to come up with an agreement. The Biden administration and congressional Democrats are demanding a number of provisions that are not included in the House bill, including additional aid for Ukraine. Without those elements, the stopgap bill is likely to fail in the Democratic-led Senate. NPR's Windsor Johnston reporting. Policymakers for the U.S. Federal Reserve open a two-day meeting in Washington today. They're expected to discuss short-term interest rates. The Fed has raised rates sharply over the last year and a half. That's because it is still trying to get inflation down to its target rate of 2%. But in August, inflation was running at an annual rate of 3.6%. You're listening to NPR News. Five Americans released yesterday by Iran have now arrived back in the U.S. They flew into Fort Belvoir, Virginia, earlier today. As part of the negotiation, the U.S. released nearly $6 billion of frozen Iranian oil revenues. In addition, the U.S. released five Iranians in its custody. In the wake of sexual harassment allegations leveled at leaders of the National Association of Realtors, advocates are demanding sweeping reforms. From member station WBEZ in Chicago, Claudia Morell has more. Standing outside the Realtors' headquarters in downtown Chicago, advocates outlined a four-point plan they say will provide needed accountability at the country's largest trade association. Jason Haber is leading the reform effort through a group he helped create. For the last two weeks, I've received calls, emails, texts, private messages from women around the country who are tired of the harassment, of the assaults, of the abuse. It must end. The NAR Accountability Project is calling for an end to non-disclosure agreements, the hiring of an outside firm to handle harassment complaints, and the termination of the organization's CEO and other leaders who turned a blind eye to harassment claims. For NPR News, I'm Claudia Morell in Chicago. The United Auto Workers Union says it could increase the number of sites that it is striking by Friday, unless the big three automakers show progress in contract talks. The UAW is on strike against three plants in three states. The union says it is demanding substantial progress in negotiations. I'm Corva Coleman. NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A new firefighter's contract is heading to the Boston City Council for approval. The Firefighters Union announced yesterday they've ratified a new three-year contract. The agreement includes a 10.5% pay raise. City firefighters have worked for two years without a contract amid the negotiations. 
The median sales price of a single-family home in Greater Boston hit a new record in August, $881,000. That's according to the Greater Boston Association of Realtors, which released its latest monthly data Monday. WBUR's Zinjor and Wameka reports. Home buying in Greater Boston continues to slow. That's because inventory remains low, while mortgage rates remain high. There were 1,090 single-family homes sold in August, which is down 25 percent from the same time last year. Sales of condos and multifamily homes were also down. Those who are buying homes often have to outbid others to compete for a scarce number of listings. That's contributing to the high prices. For example, the median sales price for a single-family home in August was up nearly 7 percent from the same time last year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. State education officials take up new sex education standards for public schools today. The updates would include greater coverage of LGBTQ plus issues, sexually transmitted infections, and dating safety. The Department of Education says it received more than 5,000 public comments on the proposal. The changes would be the first major sex ed curriculum updates in nearly 25 years. Maine's Passenger Rail Authority is proposing an increase to its Downeaster fares. The train is part of a service that runs between Brunswick, Portland, and down to Boston. The authority says the increase could be as much as $6 per individual ticket. It would be the first increase to the fare since 2019. It's 807. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival. Find something fascinating this September 25th through October 1st. From wearable tech runway shows to hands-on robotics. From industry-leading health experts to the family-friendly science carnival. Visit CambridgeScienceFestival.org to find out more. The Red Sox are celebrating a win on the road. They beat the Texas Rangers by two runs last night. Final score was 4-2. to two. The team remains in Texas tonight for Game 2 of the series. That starts at 8. Mostly sunny and breezy today with high temperatures near 74 degrees. Tonight, skies stay mostly clear and temperatures dip to around 57. Tomorrow, sunny again with a high near 74. Right now, it's 62 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faudel in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. President Biden is at the United Nations in New York today. He's giving his annual address, laying out his foreign policy agenda to a global audience and top of mind is support for a Ukraine defending itself against Russia. But there are big questions about how long U.S. support can continue. NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith is there. So let's start with a bit of a roll call. China, Russia, France and the U.K. are not attending this year. So, Tamara, it sounds like President Biden has the U.N. stage pretty much to himself. Yeah, this does mean he has less competition for his message. And what he's planning to share is his vision about U.S. leadership in the world and also what global cooperation should look like. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan characterized the U.S. role this way. We see at this point a strong demand signal for more American engagement, for more American investment, for more American presence across all continents and all quarters of the world. 
But of course, the 2024 presidential campaign is heating up and many of Biden's would-be opponents, including the frontrunner, former President Donald Trump, have very different views about the value of U.S. engagement in the world and even what American democracy should look like. Yeah, and certainly Ukraine is one of those areas. Uh, What do you expect to hear from the president on Ukraine? Well, this time last year, when President Biden spoke at the U.N., the war in Ukraine was still relatively new. Now he's speaking as it has dragged on for another year with no end in sight. And he's going to make a strong pitch to the nations of the world to remain resolute in support of Ukraine's right to sovereignty. But as Layla said, there are questions hanging over the sustainability of U.S. support in terms of weapons and economic aid. Yeah, because there's an outstanding request to Congress for more funding for Ukraine. That's right. Uh, The White House has asked Congress for another $24 billion in support of Ukraine's war effort. And White House officials insist that there really is a bipartisan coalition that exists to keep that funding coming. But have you seen Congress lately? Mm -hmm. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is facing open threats from within his conference to oust him from leadership. The government is set to run out of spending authority at the end of the month. There is no clear path to passing a budget at this point. And many far-right House Republicans are balking at the idea of giving additional money to Ukraine. All of that puts President Biden in this awkward and yet quite familiar position of standing up on the world stage and saying, don't worry, guys, America is good for it, when all signs point to instability and uncertainty on the domestic political front. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is going to be speaking to the UN today, and then he's heading to Washington later this week to make his own pitch for continued funding. So already that's a lot, but there is more on the president's plate while he's in New York. That's right. He will be the first U.S. president to meet with the leaders of the nations known as the C5. That is the Central Asian nations of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. They are neighbors of Russia and China. And this is all about the U.S. signaling that it wants to be engaged in that neighborhood, too. Uh, There are also a couple of interesting leader meetings happening on the sidelines. Biden is set to meet with the Brazilian president and labor leaders right in the midst of this United Auto Workers strike. And then President Biden is also meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, someone he hasn't met with since Netanyahu won election again with a new, more conservative coalition. NPR's Tamara Keith. Thanks a lot, Tamara. You're welcome. In northeastern Libya, floods destroyed much of the coastal city of Derna. Thousands are dead. Thousands more are missing. And nine days on, recovery efforts continue. Among the survivors are some 20,000 women who are pregnant and in need of immediate health care. That's according to the UN. 2,000 of those women are expected to give birth next week. Humanitarian workers like Ahmed Al-Gariani are working to get them the help they need. He's with the UNFPA, that's the United Nations Reproductive Health Agency, and he joins us now from Benghazi in eastern Libya. Good morning, Ahmed. Hey, good morning, Leila. Thank you for having me on the show. Ahmed, you spent the weekend in Dana assessing the situation. What did you find? What did you see there? Well, Leila, uh, with no question, the situation in Darna is beyond disastrous and heartbreaking and led to a severe impact on the people of Darna, especially women and girls and migrants. Whole neighborhoods, we're talking about whole neighborhoods, were flooded, collapsed and carried away to the middle of the sea, along with the people inside them. We're talking 10, 12 stories, buildings collapsed and carried with the powerful stream through the depths of Mediterranean. 
Large numbers of families gone. As it happened suddenly after midnight, 90% of them, as you can see, were sleeping safe in their homes. Up to this day, the search and rescue teams find bodies drowned in their homes deep in the sea. The government is doing its best for sheltering and uh, setting shelters for the displaced families. It's 45,000 people that are homeless now, 20,000 of them pregnant. Where are people going for shelter? The uh, government have uh, managed to give them shelters in, uh, for now, a temporary shelter in the schools. Uh, they have uh, six schools right now in Derna being prepared and filled with the displaced uh, families. Uh, the other half of the families just went to their families in the other cities such as Benghazi. The government is thinking of replacing those schools now with more um, uh, safe and protected shelters outside of Derna. Now, as if uh, Derna is a little bit dangerous to live there because of the bodies and the infection and the smell, mm. they're thinking of leaving of, and taking those families uh, outside of Derna and try to rebuild Derna. And what about medical care? It's a city that has largely been swept into the sea for these pregnant women and for others who need help. Where do they go for that care? Yes, for now, uh, UNFPA is working hand-to-hand with the government to settle the six primary health care facilities in the city. Those six primary health care centers were uh, submerged and flooded also with the floods. Most of the materials and devices were uh, damaged. And uh, also the staff that uh, has been uh, working in those facilities also were in the community, which was damaged, severely uh, damaged and lost their lives. Mm. UNFBA is providing at least five teams now to those facilities Five teams. Each team is uh, consists of five physicians and four paramedics. For primary health care and immediate health care, the people of Derna or the affected people in the shelters go to the health care facilities that have been established by the government and the UNFPA and other uh, sister agencies in the UN, and also at the field hospital, which is also has a team of uh, reproductive healthcare and uh, paramedics for them uh, ready to uh, receive all the affected women and girls in the area. Ahmed Al-Giriani is a program specialist with the UNFPA. He spoke with us from Benghazi. Thank you so much for sharing what you saw and what the needs are there. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Leila. In a break with tradition, U.S. senators may now wear, well, pretty much whatever suits them. That's because Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has directed the chamber's sergeant-at-arms to stop enforcing the informal dress code of the Senate, allowing senators to say bye-bye to business attire on the Senate floor. Now, the change got us thinking, why do most male politicians seem to have a kind of uniform sense of style? We reached out to men's fashion editor and writer Derek Guy. He reminded me that it hasn't always been like this, even with conservative icons. If you look back at photos of Reagan and Bush Sr., they wore things like brown suits, pattern suits, and that really narrowed into usually a dark blue suit, sometimes a gray suit and white shirt, and often just not even a pattern tie, just a solid color tie. Why do you think uh, guys got so boring with their fashion choices in politics? Historically, an interest in clothes has been coded as feminine frivolous. So many politicians and men in general have just been very timid about their clothing choices. If you wear something other than the navy dark worsted suit, then people might think you have an interest in clothing. I Obviously, as, as a man who's interested in clothing, I think that's <laughs> fine. But 
the history of clothing has been very gendered and coded in, in terms of masculine and feminine kind of characteristics. Do you think, Derek, that you can read an outfit and then guess a politician's party affiliation based on what they're wearing? I don't think that Republicans and Democrats or third party members dress terribly differently. The biggest dividing line in dress is more about age and generation. I noticed that older politicians such as Asa Hutchinson and even Joe Biden, they dress better than their younger counterparts. And I think that's partly because they come from a generation where people wore a coat and tie with more regularity. So they're a little bit more familiar with it. For example, Joe Biden, you know, he always has his trousers hemmed correctly. They're never kind of like puddling over the ankles. Um, his trousers are never too tight. His coat fits correctly. Whereas Matt Gates and George Santos, they wear their clothes much too tight. The jackets are too short. The shoes are wrong. And I think it's just because they didn't grow up in, in a coat and tie. Because I remember when Marco Rubio wore those boots with the zipper on the side. I mean, kind of like an Austin Powers feel to him in a way. I, I remember, I mean, he caught a lot of flack for that. Yeah, I think that's the one area where dress does matter for politics, is that when Rubio wore those boots, he caused the whole social media stir. And then that spilled over into the mainstream press. They all wrote about how people are now talking about Rubio's boots. It's not that voters vote based on whether a politician's well-dressed. It's that sometimes if you wear something very unusual, it ends up being a talking point. And in Rubio's case, he wore it while running for president. And it ended up being like a week worth of discourse. And I think that's where dress matters. You don't want your dress to be the focus of attention. You want what you're talking about to be the focus of attention. A week's worth of talking about his boots means a week worth of not talking about issues that actually matter to voters. And it's, again, it's not that voters will vote based on his boots. It's that you just lost a week in the primary, which is a fairly long time in the primary election, not communicating to voters the issues that will actually affect them. Menswear writer Derek Guy edits the Put This On blog. Derek, thanks a lot. Thank you for having me on. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You're starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, India is forcefully rejecting allegations by Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of its involvement in the killing of a sick activist in British Columbia. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events. Design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. And Greener U, a design-build firm that plans, engineers, and builds solutions for getting to carbon neutrality. GreenerU.com. Married couple Terry and Al Vester are in their 60s, ready to retire, but they're the only two primary care doctors in their small Alabama town. There are people here that still need doctors, so we wanted to take care of them until someone else is here to take care of them. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. How rural areas struggle to attract and keep medical talent. On All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. Mostly sunny today with a high near 75. Skies stay mostly clear tonight as it falls to a low around 57. Tomorrow, sunny and a high near 74. Right now, it's 62 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. From EBSCO, supporting open source technology and making open platforms possible for libraries of all sizes. Learn more at ebsco.com. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The number of families in need of shelter in Massachusetts has almost doubled in the past year. But an investigation by WBUR and ProPublica finds many state-subsidized apartments are sitting empty. WBUR's Todd Wallach explores how the state's waitlist system has contributed to the vacancies and how it affects people who need housing the most. I'm walking in a park in downtown Worcester with Deb Libby, past a fountain spraying water. Libby moved here from a nearby town four years ago, in part to be closer to doctors who treat her for pancreatic cancer. She lives in a garage converted to an apartment. When Libby first moved in, she helped spruce it up. Before that, it was kind of um, orange and pink and weird colors. The bathroom was navy blue. You know, so I painted all the rooms, all the ceilings, patched all the walls. But a new owner bought the property and ordered Libby out. Libby isn't sure what she'll do. She earns only a little more than minimum wage working in the garden center at Lowe's. And she can only work limited hours because of her cancer and other health problems. I'm in desperate need of some place to live. And I can't afford the high price of rent in the area and really in any town. When the new owner launched eviction proceedings a year ago, Libby put her name on the wait list for state public housing. She's applied in Worcester and 30 other communities. So far, she's heard nothing from local housing authorities. It's like the system's broken. You know, why isn't somebody at least giving me an email or a response or a letter or something, but absolutely nothing? Libby is among the more than 180,000 people waiting for a state-funded public apartment. But records show nearly 2,300 units were empty at the end of July, most beyond the 60 days the state gives local housing agencies to find new tenants. Several empty apartments are in Agawam, a middle-class suburb of Springfield. Agawam Housing Authority Director Maureen Kerr shows me a family development called Brady Village. Outside are barbecue grills and children's bikes. And, well, there's a vacuum cleaner, which is a little odd, but, you know, whatever. Kerr says 10 of the 44 units here are vacant, some for more than two years. This one has been vacant for the longest time. So this has been vacant for 917 days. It's a long time. It's a very long time. After stepping inside the two-bedroom, Kerr's voice bounces off the bare walls and floors. She's frustrated no one's living here or in the other units. They're bright, they're clean, and they're empty. It's a problem all over Massachusetts. Costing the taxpayers money. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's a failure. Care says one of the biggest reasons housing agencies can't find potential tenants is the state wait list. In the past, people who wanted housing applied separately to each housing agency they were interested in, and staffers often helped them complete the paperwork. But four years ago, 
Massachusetts launched a new system that lets people apply anywhere across the state online. Advocates hoped the new system would make it easier for people to find housing. Some housing officials say it's done the opposite. How do I like the centralized waiting lists? I think it's the most horrible, horrible, inefficient program. David Hedison is executive director of the Chelmsford Housing Authority. The whole sense of helping residents in your community is gone. Hedison says there are lots of reasons. The online form is longer and more complicated. People fill it out incorrectly. And there hasn't been a process to verify the information up front. So housing agencies routinely spend weeks asking for documents, only to find people don't qualify. When WBUR spoke to Hedison last spring, he noted, I have two family three-bedroom units. We've offered out to over 500 people from the centralized waiting lists, and we cannot get someone eligible to move into those units. Hedison says another issue is that housing authorities all draw names from the same central database. So it's common for agencies to vet the same person at once, duplicating efforts. They even make competing offers and have to wait to see which place the person picks. If the person doesn't pick Chelmsford, then Hedison has to start over. You can't tell me it's our fault. We're using the system that state put in place. And there are people that need units, people that need to be housed yesterday. The state's new Secretary of Housing, Ed Augustus, acknowledges the vacancies are a problem. I think it's unacceptable. Uh, I think that we need to do everything we can to make sure that every single one of our precious public housing units is filled and the amount of time between tenants is as short as is humanly possible. Augustus says his staff is trying to address the complaints. The state recently hired a firm to take over some of the screening that has long bedeviled local housing officials. Still, Augustus says he's not sure exactly when all the vacancies will be filled. Well, we certainly are hoping to see improvement soon. This is an iterative process. We'll continue to make changes as necessary. Those changes can't happen fast enough for people like Deb Libby, who are stuck on the wait list. She says she was surprised to hear about all the empty apartments across the state. Yeah, it makes me very frustrated. I have a hard time sleeping. I, I don't know what I'm going to do, and, and that's not good for my health. Libby says she wishes she could talk to the people in charge. Find me something. I mean, I'm one person. I don't have kids. I don't have a dog. I don't smoke. I don't care what floor I'm on. I mean, I'm pretty easy fit. Libby is running out of time. She has to leave her Worcester apartment by the end of the month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. Tomorrow on WBUR, another reason these apartments are sitting empty, backlogs of needed maintenance and renovations. You can find information about vacancies in your community at WBUR.org. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. We ask an expert about what seems like a rising number of interactions with bears and coyotes in the greater Boston area. It's 829.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Five Americans released by Iran as part of a prisoner exchange with the Biden administration are back in the U.S. They were greeted by cheers and relatives before dawn after landing at Fort Belvoir in Virginia. President Biden and Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky will be addressing the U.N. General Assembly today. Each is expected to push for broader support for Kyiv as Ukraine continues its counteroffensive against Russian forces. With Ukraine getting much of the attention at the U.N., NPR's Tamara Keith says a number of world leaders are skipping this year's gathering. The leaders of China and Russia, as well as France and the U.K., are not attending the U.N. General Assembly this year. But Biden administration officials insist the gathering still presents an opportunity for Biden to make his case for U.S. leadership in the world. A big part of the pitch is for continued support for Ukraine as it defends itself against Russia. But there are serious questions about how long U.S. support can continue. The White House has asked Congress for an additional $24 billion dollars to aid Ukraine. But some House Republicans, led by a hard-right faction, are balking at approving further assistance. Tamara Keith, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts lawmakers are calling for greater oversight into the state's Cannabis Control Commission. The legislators say the group lacks transparency and are calling for an independent audit. This follows the abrupt suspension of the group's chair earlier this month. The reason for her dismissal remains unclear. A former Massachusetts state trooper convicted of faking overtime will not lose his pension. A judge has ruled 73-year-old John Gelino should not forfeit the $1 million retirement. The state retirement board had initially ordered him to forfeit his pension. According to the ruling reviewed by the Boston Globe, the judge determined the decision was a violation of constitutional rights. A Massachusetts doctor says people with stuffy noses should reconsider how to treat their symptoms. A Food and Drug Administration advisory panel ruled last week that the oral form of a decongestant called phenylephrine has very limited side effects, has very limited effects. It is widely used in over-the-counter remedies like NyQuil and Sudafed. Daniel Karitzkes is chief of the Infectious Diseases Division at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He says waiting it out is the best remedy against the common cold. The usual advice of drinking lots of fluids and taking either acetaminophen or ibuprofen for the aches and pains of uh, a cold or flu are really probably the best thing that people can do. Karitzkes says phenylephrine is slightly more effective when used as a spray in drugs like Afrin. It's 8.33. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. salemstate.edu graduate. 
The Red Sox broke their four-game losing streak last night in Texas. They beat the Rangers 4-2. The teams will face off again tonight for Game 2 of the series. Mostly clear skies today and highs in the mid-70s. Tonight it stays mostly clear as it falls to lows in the upper 50s. Sunny tomorrow with a high back in the mid-70s. Right now it's 63 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is accusing India's government of ordering the killing of a Sikh leader in British Columbia, Canada has expelled an Indian diplomat who'd been described as the head of Indian intelligence in the country. Now, Trudeau's explosive comments in Parliament came after Canadian national security officials said they had credible intelligence that India was behind the assassination in June. NPR international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam has been following the developments. Uh, Jackie, first uh, tell us uh, about the alleged assassination. Who was killed? Well, it was a man named Hardeep Singh Najjar, and uh, he was a prominent leader in the Sikh community in Surrey, which is a suburb of Vancouver. Najjar was considered really an outspoken advocate for creating an independent Sikh state in India's Punjab region, and the Indian government called him a terrorist. He was shot dead uh, just outside one of the main Sikh temples in Surrey, and two masked gunmen were seen running away. You know, his killing really sent a shockwave of, you know, of fear through the Sikh community because it did appear to be targeted. Yeah, and now the Canadian government is accusing India of it being behind it. Um, and th- I mean, that's a big deal for the for the leader of a G7 country to openly accuse another government of assassinating one of its own citizens. I mean, what did Trudeau have to say? Well, he said for the past few weeks, Canada's security agencies have been investigating the killing and have come to the conclusion that agents of the government of India, his words, were responsible. Um, Let's have a listen to him talking in Parliament. Any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. And A, Trudeau said steps will be taken to go after those responsible for killing Najjar. What's India's response been? Well, India's dismissed the allegations and it's calling them absurd. And it's also expelling a Canadian diplomat. It's voiced concerns about what it calls anti-India activities in Canada. But uh, Trudeau told Parliament that he personally and directly brought up the allegations of Najjar's killing when he met with Prime Minister Narendra Modi earlier this year at the G20 summit in New Delhi. Um, Here's here's Trudeau again. In the strongest possible terms, I continue to urge the government of India to cooperate with Canada to get to the bottom of this matter. 
And Trudeau said Canada has been working closely and coordinating with its allies on this. And the National Security Council, a spokesperson, said it's deeply concerned about the allegations of the assassination and is remaining in contact with its Canadian partners about it. So I'm guessing uh, relations between India and Canada aren't uh, too good right now. No, I mean, you know, relations were already rocky before this. You know, just about Sikh separatists in Canada, and India has complained about demonstrations outside its High Commission in Ottawa and elsewhere in Canada. You know, and earlier this month, Canada suspended trade negotiations with India, and these were supposed to have been wrapped up this year. You know, with these tit-for-tat expulsions and now this allegation of assassination, it's hard to imagine relations are going to improve anytime soon. Yeah, NPR's Jackie Northam. Jackie, thanks. Thanks very much. When Rolling Stone co-founder Jan Wenner was asked by the New York Times' David Marchese why his new book of classic interviews with musicians called Masters only included white men, he said this. Insofar as women, I mean, they were just, none of them were as articulate enough on this intellectual level. Marchese pushed back hard, but Wenner didn't back down. Of black artists, he said, quote, they just didn't articulate at that level. The backlash to the interview was resounding, but the criticisms of Wenner goes further than just one book. Historically, critics say Rolling Stone magazine and other gatekeepers of culture have excluded or minimized the achievements of women and people of color. To talk about that, we're joined by longtime culture writer Nelson George. Good morning, Nelson. Welcome to the program. Good morning. So were you surprised by Wenner's comments? Uh, not at all. I mean, the history of Rolling Stone uh, largely has been one of either exclusion or minimizing mm. um, the contributions of women and men, black men and black women. I think you have to look at the history of the magazine um, from, I think, from the founding in the 60s all the way into maybe the 90s. I don't think that they didn't have a black staff writer. Uh, they had very few women writers. So there wasn't a lot of outside voices uh, in those offices. Moreover, what's really frightening or sort of sad about his comments is that because Rolling Stone was essentially the gatekeeper, the seminal voice of, of youth culture, at least perceived by the mainstream, uh, they defined what the canon of rock and roll was. Mm. And they were the kind of canon of rock and roll in very narrow terms that basically celebrated uh, white men with guitars that Jan Winter liked. So, so when you have that as your, your criteria, uh, it kind of limits who you celebrate as, as greats. So these comments really showed the way that gatekeeping excluded these other voices. And the thing about Rolling Stone also to remember is because it, was, it had such an outside voice as the voice of sort of rock music culture or even youth culture at one point, it affected how TV programmers program. It infected radio and infected... Um, newspaper coverage. So who they deemed to be important resonated throughout and who they deemed not to be important resonated throughout. So if you were a white rock band named Kansas or Boston or Chicago in the 60s or 70s, mm -hmm. you got more coverage than Chaka Khan or Parliament Funkadelic or Earth and Fire. Now, Jan Wenner was scheduled to do an interview with us on his book, but after his comments and the backlash, his publicist canceled and sent us the written apology that's been issued in the wake of all this. He wrote, in part, The Masters is a collection of interviews I've done over the years that seem to me to best represent an idea of rock and roll's impact on my world. They were not meant to represent the whole of music. What do you make of that apology? 
Well, he called his book The Masters, and that was already the first step. If the book was called My Favorite Rock Stars, I think we all would have felt, oh, well, it's, it's a little, you know, a little narrow, but that's who Jan is. But by calling it The Masters, he, he suggested these guys are other, other masters of a genre of music that helped define America in the last half century. And that's going to get backlash, particularly when it doesn't include Marvin Gaye or Joni Mitchell mm. or Stevie Wonder, and the list could go on. Right. And not only did he suggest it in this interview with the New York Times, he says women and black people do not have the same intellectual level as these artists. So today, do these gatekeepers have the same power they did then? I mean, the truth is uh, it's a free for all. Now, um, there's a million websites, there's a million uh, people posting on YouTube. So uh, it's we went from a, a very curated and narrowly curated culture to one where there is almost no curation. There really aren't gatekeepers with the, the power that Rolling Stone had in its prime. Not anymore. That's culture writer Nelson George. His new book is The Nelson George Mixtape, Volume 2. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. Thank you. This is NPR News. You're listening to WBUR on a Tuesday morning. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report takes a look at the state of tipping and offers advice on how to navigate a consumer world that often hinges on gratuities. Mid-70s and sunny today, upper 50s and mostly clear tonight. Tomorrow, sunny and back in the mid-70s. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm. Committed to protecting your intellectual property one idea at a time. Learn more at davismom.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. Cambridge-based 270 Bio is laying off 145 Massachusetts workers. That's a majority of the company-wide layoff of 176 people. Forty percent of the company is being cut overall. The layoff comes as 270 struggles to sell its only commercial product. Shareholders of Boston-based Paratech Pharmaceuticals are in support of a $462 million buyout. If approved, the company will be acquired this quarter. The sale means Paratech will go private after being publicly traded for nine years. Providence, Rhode Island and Portland, Maine need restaurant workers. A new report finds that Maine has 5 percent fewer workers in restaurants compared to before the pandemic. In Rhode Island, it's 3.1 percent. Trade organizations tell the Boston Globe they're trying to fill the gaps by setting up apprenticeship programs. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College, who believes the future is fueled by entrepreneurial leaders. Learn to lead with impact and become a driving force for change. Explore Babson's full-time in-person programs and part-time in-person and online programs at their graduate virtual open house, October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu slash gradopenhouse. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. People in the greater Boston area are used to seeing bunnies, geese, turkeys, 
rats. But recently, encounters with bears have also made the news, and residents in Jamaica Plain were rattled last month when a coyote was spotted carrying off a small dog. We wanted to know if these encounters are happening more often and what we should do when they do happen. And Dave Waddles is here to answer those questions. He's a biologist with the Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife. Hi, Dave. Hi, Rupa. How are you doing? I'm okay. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Are we seeing more encounters with coyotes and bears, or are these interactions just making the news more? I think with coyotes, we're probably about the same as we have been for the past about decade or so. Some of the increase in sightings can be attributed to the increase in things like ring doorbells that are picking up a lot of coyote encounters that were happening in the middle of the night or while people were at work. The coyotes that are in Boston are resident there. They're born and raised in the city. The increase in bear sightings is definitely something that we have seen over the past handful of years. Um, And it's a result of our growing bear population getting closer to the greater Boston suburbs and young males typically dispersing right into those suburbs. Okay, let's take it one by one. What should someone do if they encounter a bear? It's important to remember that a bear is a large and powerful animal. Um, And so it's really just we encourage people to give the animal space to not try to get closer, to take a photo, to not follow it, to see where it's going, you know, just kind of let it wander through. These animals are really moving through our neighborhoods and our communities looking for food. Uh, Unfortunately, we provide a lot of food. Every community in Massachusetts does around our homes and our businesses. And coyotes and bears are very smart animals. uh, And they've learned that the best place to find food is in our backyards and close to our homes. What should someone do if they encounter a coyote? Yeah, we have three main tips for coyotes. It's removing and securing those foods around your home so you're not drawing them in, aggressively hazing coyotes when you see them, making loud noises, physically chasing the coyote out of your yard, throwing small objects on it so it's not comfortable coming around your home, and then really kind of most importantly, protecting your pets. By far the most serious form of conflict we have with coyotes is those attacks on pets that you mentioned before. Coyotes can't unfortunately distinguish between our pets and the way they would any other wild animal. Um, So they see those as potential prey items for cats and small dogs. Larger dogs, they actually interpret the way they would another coyote in their territory. And so we can see aggression towards them. They won't tolerate other coyotes in their territory. And they can be aggressive even to dogs as large as labs, shepherds, uh, as a result of that. So I know you've been doing outreach and informational sessions to kind of make people more aware of these threats. This is a serious subject, but do you get jokes like the roadrunner jokes, things like that? Yeah, we're actually doing a coyote presentation for the city of Boston. We asked Boston Animal Control, I believe it was them who did it, you know, said Dave Waddles will be presenting information on coyotes. And I don't believe he's going to give the common recommendation of painting the uh, the tunnel on the side of the mountain, you know, referring to Wiley Coyote and everything. So, yes, they're... Despite the the serious encounters and serious issues people can have with these animals, we still do get occasionally get people with a sense of humor. Dave Waddles is a biologist with the Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife. Thank you so much for being here and keeping us informed. My pleasure. Thank you. 
That story is part of WBUR's expansive Field Guide to Boston project. It's a place where you can find stories and resources to help you explore and understand this place we call home. Check it out for yourself right now at WBUR.org slash field guide. Top the hour on WBUR. It's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on Canadian allegations that India was involved in the assassination of a Canadian Sikh activist in British Columbia. And Germany has outlawed Hammerskins, a neo Nazi group known for its role in organizing far right concerts and selling racist music. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter McLennan and Fish counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter, online at nutter.com. And The Huntington, presenting Fat Ham, the 2022 Pulitzer Prize winner reinvents Hamlet with a queer black twist. September 22nd through October 29th, HuntingtonTheater.org. 2021 was a good year to invest in cryptocurrency. We had heard so many stories of people getting rich overnight on crypto that even like the craziest promises seemed kind of plausible. But then came 2022 and the trillion dollar crypto wipeout. We'll hear tales from the world of casino capitalism. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky begins a visit to the United States where he's set to seek more aid to hold off Russian forces. The auto workers unions say more strikes are planned for this week if contract negotiations with car manufacturers stall. And world leaders kick off the annual United Nations General Assembly meeting in New York today. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Just a few clouds today, otherwise sunny and in the mid-70s. Temperatures fall to the upper 50s tonight. Tomorrow, sunny and mid-70s again. Thursday will be sunny too and in the low 70s. Right now it's 64 degrees in Boston. An economic balancing act that is getting harder to pull off. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by otter.ai. If someone's late to a meeting, otter's AI-powered meeting assistant catches them up with a real-time meeting summary. More at otter.ai. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Benishore, in for David Brancaccio. At the top of this economy sits a giant brake pedal and a giant gas pedal. And the Federal Reserve starts a two-day meeting today to decide what to do with them. We're talking about interest rates. Lower rates are economic gas. Higher rates are economic brakes. The Fed is trying to put the brakes on just enough to bring inflation down without causing a recession. 
That is getting more complicated because the economy is facing some headwinds that are outside of the Fed's control. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has more. Just look at what consumers are facing right now. Gas prices averaging about $3.80 a gallon, according to AAA. Elizabeth Renter is a data analyst at NerdWallet. There is a strong correlation between what's going on at the pump and how people feel about the economy. Renter says if they feel like inflation is getting out of hand, they might spend less. Other consumers are losing income. Picketing United Auto Workers get strike pay, but it's usually less than their regular check. And nearly a million federal workers could be furloughed without pay if there's a government shutdown, according to Oxford Economics lead U.S. economist Nancy Vandenhouten. They will have to cut back on their spending. She says even more consumers will cut back next month when student loan repayments start up again after a pause during the pandemic. Falling spending could help the Fed cool the economy since consumers drive about 70 percent of economic growth. Laura Veldkamp teaches economics at Columbia. They might think those are doing enough work to hold prices down uh, by themselves that maybe they won't have to raise rates again. But Veldkamp says the Fed hopes these headwinds don't send us into a recession that would jeopardize their dreams of a soft landing where the economy slows just enough to conquer inflation without sputtering into a downturn. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. Checking numbers real quick. NASDAQ futures are down two-tenths of a percent. S&P futures and Dow futures both down less than a tenth of a percent. Dow futures down 23 points. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. Learn more at c3.ai. This is Enterprise AI. And by Baird, dedicated to attracting and retaining talent from across the financial industry, providing continuity for clients. More at BairdDifference.com. This week, we are taking a look at an economic behavior that hits a nerve for a lot of people. Tipping. When we do it, how we do it, how much we do it, norms are changing, and people sometimes find that confusing or even frustrating. Two in three U.S. adults have a negative view of tipping, according to a bank rate survey from this past summer. 41% say instead of relying on tips, businesses should just pay employees more. And yet many workers rely on tips. So we will start with the history of tipping with Saru Jayaraman. She's the president of One Fair Wage, a service worker advocacy group. Welcome. Thanks for having me. One often heard justification for the system of tipping that we have now is that, you know, you can pay workers less than minimum wage because, well, it'll get made up for by the tips. But I can think of a few industries where one tips, you know, tour guides, barbers, entertainers. In all those industries, they, they still pay at least minimum wage. So why is the restaurant industry different? Yeah, so it has a pretty ugly and sordid history that relates to our original sin as a country. So pre-emancipation of slavery, waiters in the United States were actually mostly white men, and they did not receive tips they received wages. So in 1853, the white men who did not get tips got wages working as servers in Boston, Philadelphia, and Chicago went on strike. And in response, not wanting to pay them higher wages, the restaurant industry started looking for cheaper labor. And after emancipation, they hit upon the idea of hiring newly freed Black people, Black women in particular, coming up from the South 
and telling them, we're not going to pay you. You're going to exist on this thing that's come from Europe called TIPS. What does the legacy of that arrangement mean for workers today? So the way that it works today is that, you know, a worker can be paid as little as $2.13 an hour at the federal level. 43 states still have a sub-minimum wage for tipped workers, and the law requires employers to ensure that tips bring workers to the full minimum wage. Otherwise, they're supposed to pay the difference. But the Obama administration found an 84% violation rate of employers actually ensuring those rules are followed and declared the issue unenforceable. So in practice, it means that a worker gets two, three, four dollars, depending on the state. In fact, almost 40 states have wages of five dollars or less. It means that they struggle with three times the poverty rate of other workers. And it means that this mostly female workforce struggles with the highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry because they have to put up with so much to get those tips. For consumers, some of them might say tips are a way to reward good service, punish bad service, so that they don't get ripped off in a sense uh, if they get bad service. Does that mindset, that normative framework, does that need to go away? Absolutely, especially because unfortunately the data shows that tipping in this country is not actually correlated with the quality of service. It's unfortunately correlated with the race and gender and look of the server. Uh, and there is now mountains of irrefutable evidence around this that's actually been performed by a professor at Cornell School of Hospitality Management based on data from the chains. As much as we think we're tipping based on the quality of service, the data shows that in some total we are not, and a Black woman will always earn five to eight dollars an hour less than a white man in tips, even when she is performing what we call, quote unquote, perfect service. Saru Jayaraman is president of the service worker advocacy group One Fair Wage. She's also the director of the Food Labor Research Center at the University of California, Berkeley. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. And Arts Thursdays at Harvard with Azad, a fusion of Middle Eastern stories, modern cinema, and shadow puppets. This Thursday at 6, artlab.harvard.edu. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.